Good morning. Good to see you all. Come take your seats. <clears throat> Great to see you all this morning. Uh, if you're new here, you don't know me or uh, Mr. Nathaniel saying this. Uh, my name's Richard, and uh, I'm one of the pastors here. It's great to welcome you this morning. Really hope you guys have all enjoyed summer. It's been the best six days of the year so far, hasn't it? I mean, come on. Um, if you're part of the church, you'll know uh, this morning that we're back in uh, the book of John, and we are working through John's gospel up until Christmas um, in this series that we've called Believe. In chapter 21 of the book, it tells you why John wrote the book. It says, all these things were written that you might believe. That's what we are praying for and hoping for that you will believe increasingly the truths of Jesus Christ as we work through this series, which is why we're preaching it and kind of deep diving each week and have been for a few months and will be now until Christmas. Uh, we're in chapter 11. be helpful if you had a Bible in front of you. Um, uh, I'll give you a moment to get there. We're in, we're in chapter 11, starting in verse 45 today. It's an obscure and unusual passage that uh, is often overlooked, but I'm hoping that there's some really good stuff in there for you today. I think the words will come up on the screen behind me as well. If uh, this afternoon you walk down to Parkstone Cemetery and someone there claiming to be a holy man said, watch this, and then he called a dead friend out of the grave, how would you react? What would you do? What would you think? I've uh, given quite a bit of time this week to thinking about this as I was preparing. I, I imagine... Uh, Having full confession here, having watched my, full, my fair share of zombie movies over the years, I'd probably be a mixture of completely freaked out uh, and completely overawed and astonished. But it, either way, it would seem very unreal. I honestly believe if we were to observe such a thing, maybe this would be true for you too. It would, in my case, completely rearrange my understanding of the world. I, just, I wouldn't be able to just ignore that fact. It's just too unreal and too shocking to leave me unchanged in some way. I couldn't ignore it. I'd have to somehow make sense of it. It would require a response of some sort from me. You wouldn't just go home and, I don't know, make a cheese and pickle sandwich and flick on Sky Sports. You wouldn't just get on with your day. Can, can you imagine? Hey, babe, how was your day? Yeah, it was great. I uh, had a finance meeting. I had lunch with Nathaniel. And, uh, oh, yeah, I saw a dead guy raised at the cemetery. It's not, it's not kind of in that kind of category, is it? That, that sort of thing would just arrest you in your tracks uh, and cause you to work out what was going on. And there are different ways of dealing with an event like that. For some people, it might be fascinating and make them want to track down this holy man and find out how he did it and why. For others, it'd just be terrifying, and they just want to kind of pretend that they'd never seen it. I remember um, a really shocking day on September the 11th, 2011, 22 years ago this weekend, pretty much, watching in absolute stunned terror as two aeroplanes flew into the World Trade Center in New York City. Now, of course, that wasn't a dead man being raised, but by the standards of those days, to see a passenger aircraft fly into one of the world's most iconic buildings in the heart of the strongest nation on Earth, live on TV, nothing like that had ever happened before. And I was, I was shocked, and I was stunned, and I, I couldn't quite get my, my head around what I was seeing and what was going on. I, I kind of remember, it almost felt like the earth was literally moving beneath my feet. I felt like kind of a mixture of disbelief. This, this can't just have happened. And deep sorrow for the lives that were lost as well. And I, I recall a sense of deep fear in me as well, that the world was going to change in ways that I couldn't anticipate. And I remember at one level, 
part of my psychology just wanted to ignore this, to pretend that it hadn't happened, or, or to put it down to a fluke, a, a one-off event that would never happen again, because if I could ignore it or explain it, then I could kind of take away its power and relieve my disorientation and my fear. It's very different, but it's the closest I think I've come in my lifetime to something so surreal and shocking that it's kind of messed with my psychology in that kind of way. Thinking about this has actually helped me to better understand one of the things that might be going on in today's passage. Last week, you remember we heard a story about how Jesus hears about the death of his friend Lazarus, and four days later, when Lazarus is dead and well buried in the grave, Jesus arrives and calls him out of the grave in front of his friends, Mary and Martha. It says in John 11:43 that when Jesus arrived at the grave, he called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. So the dead man came out. His hands and his feet were still wrapped with strips of linen and cloth around his face, which is how you'd embalm and bury a body. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. That would have been my experience of 9-11 on steroids. If you're an onlooker, what on earth do you do with something like that? Well, let's see. Today's passage, John 11:45. this is straight after Lazarus is raised from the dead. It says, therefore, many of the Jews who'd come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did, which is raising Lazarus from the dead, believed in him, of course. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin, their kind of ruling council. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own. But as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, of course, they plotted to take his life. Right, so... These guys have gone down to the local cemetery and seen Jesus call a dead man right out of the grave. Amazing, shocking. How on earth do we process this? Maybe this Jesus is who he actually says he is. Nope. Verse 45, only some of whom were there believed. And you're like, what else does Jesus need to do to prove his divinity and his power? The rest of them run to the Jewish leaders and report it, and their response is not necessarily to disbelieve. They, they do actually believe that Jesus has performed many signs. But instead of moving towards him in awe and worship, they call a team meeting, and they think about the, negative, the possible negative consequences for them and how they're going to deal with that. And their attitude is, well, if you let them go on like this, then everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and they'll take away our temple and our nation. Therefore, they conclude, instead of acknowledging the truth of what is actually happening here, we need to do something quickly to suppress this. This is what some social scientists today would call denialism. 
Denialism is the rejection of basic facts that are undisputed and scientifically supported, but that we would still, for whatever reason, outright and completely reject. It's a complex psychological phenomenon, but it's very real. And it ranges from the very harmless, for example, the, the person who believes, in spite of all the evidence, that the Earth is flat, and you just cannot convince them otherwise, all the way through to the really damaging. There are still some parts of the world where the political hierarchy have refused to believe that, for example, there's a connection between HIV and AIDS and the implications on the populace for that. Or even the small slither of people who still believe that a, a, don't believe that a Holocaust happened during the Second World War. Despite all the evidence, these people refuse to believe the evidence. And it's, it's birthed in a kind of anxiety about what might happen if we allow ourselves to be moved from our kind of pre-existing belief paradigm. The idea is that if I believe that the Earth isn't flat, then maybe other things that I've believed will start to unravel too. So it's, it's kind of understandable to that extent, but it's, it's largely irrational. And sometimes, as I've pointed out, can be very harmful. And it's rooted in self-preservation. It says that to believe anything to the contrary will have negative consequences for me. That's what's happening here. Jesus raises a guy from the dead. Surely he is who he says he is. But instead of belief and wonder, their first thought is anxious. How do we suppress and ignore what has just happened in order to ensure that our existing paradigm and our existing way of life doesn't unravel? Now, this part of the story asks a serious question of us, and that question is this. In what areas of your life and faith and walk with Jesus might you be guilty of a similar sort of denialism? In what areas of your life are you potentially choosing, maybe actively, to oppose or to reject or to suppress the truth and the call and the invitation of Jesus on you so that it doesn't mess with your safely constructed understanding of how the world is and what it means to surrender yourself fully to Jesus. I often um, chuckle at my own failures in this area. This isn't an exact analogy, but I can show up here on a Sunday along with everyone else and raise my hands and I can sing about the saving, sovereign nature of God who has overcome the grave and he heals the blind and he places the stars in the sky. The God who loves me, walks alongside me, meets my every need, supplies my daily bread. Sing about all these absolute truths and then the very next day stress out about something like, I don't know, how am I going to pay the gas bill or something like that. And I know we all do it. But I also just want to kind of take a moment to normalize some of the stuff so that we, we do know how to respond when these times come. Because there is a fine line between doubt, which is completely normal, and outright rejection, which is what is happening in this story, which is actually very dangerous for us as believers. From uh, time to time, I could find myself feeling a level of doubt that, I don't know, breakthrough is coming or that God can fix a broken situation. And it's very easy to beat yourself up in those moments and to try and kind of bash faith into your head and to condemn yourself when you find it lacking. But I've also found a real grace in those moments too. I, I think that being a Christian comes with an underlying assumption that at times we will experience doubt. And I'm going to give you three reasons why I think this is normal and what to do when it happens. The first one, you're human. 
Sinful and fallen since Eden. The Bible metaphorically says that we're made like dust. We're flimsy and we're weak. God knows that because he made us and he extends grace to you anyway. You're going to have moments when faith is easy and you're going to have moments when faith is not. If you're following the church Bible reading along with us, you would have read in 2 Timothy just this week that even when we are faithless, he remains faithful. His power to do good in your life is not dependent on how faithful you feel. Number two, he is authoring and he is perfecting your faith. It isn't yet perfect, it's being perfected, sometimes through the very vehicle of doubt. In these moments, you've got to trust that he's working something into you. That's, that's been true for me so many times in my life. Doubt can actually be the tool by which he ultimately builds faith, which is what he's trying to do. And number three, doubt is not the same as rejection. These guys saw Jesus raise someone from the dead, and they ran in the opposite direction. Theirs wasn't doubt so much as a, uh, an outright self-preserving rejection. It was denialism. And it's important for you and I to be able to discern the difference. Doubt is part of the human struggle. Hardened refusal to trust Jesus, deliberately walking away from what we know to be true and what it invites you into, that's what's dangerous. So when you wrestle with doubt, give yourself a break. How you respond in those moments is what's important and says as much about your faith or your lack thereof as anything. Almost every major character in the Bible wrestled with doubt. Abraham doubted that God would give him the land. Moses saw God in a burning bush and doubted him time and time again. King David in the Psalms, Lord, have you forgotten me? Elijah, one day he's, you know the story, up on a mountain defeating all the prophets of Baal, calling down fire from heaven in the power of God. The very next day he's running scared for his life from Jezebel. God gave grace and strength to them all and fulfilled his purposes through them anyway. And he can through you. It's not unusual to experience doubts. This might be especially true for you if you're walking through a long season, perhaps, of not seeing prayers answered or receiving breakthrough in something that you're struggling with. And it can be confusing and it can be distressing when God doesn't seem to move the mountains that he says he can in Scripture. But even in that confusion and distress, and even feeling those things is itself a statement of faith because it says, God, from all that I know about you, this outcome is not what I expected. I'm hoping for a different outcome in you. That's a very legitimate prayer as well. And of course, we've got to remember as well that faith is not something that kind of wells up from within. It's not something that you can work up or manufacture. Faith is a gift from God. John 6, Jesus tells us, you can't do it yourself. He says, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. In fact, the only reason you're sitting here today, the only reason that you have any faith in God at all is because he put it in your heart and he drew you to him. You didn't do it yourself. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that you and I actually bring nothing to the party. He's done it all for us. His sacrifice wasn't 99.5% effective for your salvation and you contributed the other 0.5%. His sacrifice was effective for your life before you were even born. And his sacrifice at the cross cast its power over all human history. The book of Revelation tells us about the lamb who was slain from the beginning of the earth, from before we were even around. Sometimes faith simply looks like standing and saying, 
Lord, your word says that faith is a gift, and right now I'm struggling to exercise faith, so I'm going to wait on you patiently for you to cause faith to rise up in me again, because I can't, and nor should I, try to work it up in myself. That's just not the gospel. The danger is to see and know the truth and to deliberately ignore it or try and suppress it. That's what these guys are doing in the story. They see Jesus raise a dead man, and their response is, if we don't do something about this Jesus, then the Romans are going to come and take away our temple. It's outright denialism. They rejected Jesus when the truth of who he was became too threatening and inconvenient to them. And that should be an evaluative criteria for how we respond in those moments. But doubt says sometimes, like the father of the epileptic boy in Mark 9 who looked Jesus right in the face, Lord, I believe but would you help me in my unbelief? Maybe that's a season you're in now. And if not, when that season comes, perhaps that's a prayer you'll need to pray. And there's grace for that. And there's mercy for that. So let me say to you this morning, especially if you've come here today not really kind of feeling it, or maybe you're doing all sorts of mental gymnastics to try and get faith, how you feel in any one given moment does not dictate your ultimate destiny in Jesus you'll all have good seasons and bad seasons, seasons of great faith and seasons of doubt. Your faith is a work in progress, and it's being authored and perfected by the same one who extends grace to you at the time that you most need it. And he gives faith as a gift to you, as you need it. So ask him for it. That's a statement of faith in all of itself, all in itself. What happens next is, uh, is a profound example of how God works through people and situations to bring about his purposes. And I'm, I'm really hoping that as we work through this next section, this will really help you if you're experiencing doubt that God is good or if you're scratching your head at the state of the world or you're asking, in light of all that I'm seeing and experience, where is God? This, this part of the passage has really spoken to me this week. It's, it's concerned with what we sometimes call the sovereignty of God and that God is sovereign over all things is good news for you because it makes sense of all, it starts to make sense for sure, of all the brokenness in the world and uh, all the things in your own life, unanswered prayer or struggles that you're facing or the way it can sometimes seem that evil has the upper hand in the world. Flicking on the news this morning, again, seeing about Morocco, these questions come up, don't they? And it's important, I think, for us, or helpful maybe, to pitch this against the fact that in this country, we have a sovereign king, King Charles. He is sovereign by virtue of who he is and that he was born into the royal family, and he sits enthroned as the sovereign. He reigns. He is the sovereign. But he does not rule. He, he is sovereign because of his birth line. He doesn't actively have any constitutional or administrative power. So his is a, a kind of, in some ways, if you'll forgive the phrase, a bit of a toothless tiger type of uh, reign. But he is the sovereign, but it's different. Let's read these verses again and then unpack this issue. These men see Lazarus raised. They run to the Jewish ruling council and they panic. If we don't deal with Jesus, then the Romans are going to deal with us. Verse 49. Then one of them named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. Okay. Now this part is crucial. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God, to bring them together and to make them one. Caiaphas was 
the Jewish high priest, he hears this most recent story in this developing situation with Jesus that he's been tracking, and his response is this. It's better that he dies than that we all die. And that's pretty much how you'd expect him to respond as the protector of the Jewish people and the Jewish faith and the temple. Remove Jesus or we'll all get removed by the Romans. That's what he's saying. But the next verse tells us that he didn't say these words of his own accord. It says that he prophesied them. That means that God put them there. Why on earth would God put those words in Caiaphas' mouth? And this is how the sovereignty of God works. And it's very, very important for us to grasp. God is Lord of all creation and over all creation. That doesn't just mean that he kind of created it and that he then sits back with his arms crossed and watches it all unfold. Sovereignty in this context means that God actively exercises rule as king as well, having control over all events through what he has created and through personal involvement in every situation. Does that make sense? I'll say it a different way. God is working out a meticulous plan throughout history. And the way that he's doing this is both by orchestrating and allowing events to play out in human history, in your, in your life, like a, a master orchestra conductor. He will cause some events to happen that make no sense whatsoever to you, but that in his sovereignty have great meaning and purpose for his plan. At other times, he may just allow events to happen that he has predetermined and foreseen that, again, make absolutely no sense to you, but that have infinite worth and purpose in what he is doing in history, unfolding a plan which finds its conclusion in you and I and millions of people from all across history finding their home in a renewed heaven and earth for all eternity with him. That's the plan of God. That's what he's doing And whether or not we can see it is not really what's important because we're not God. He is. What's important is that we believe it to be true because it's what Scripture teaches. And if we do, then it makes sense of everything else that's going on in the world. It makes sense of the good things that we receive as an act of His grace. And it makes sense of wars and dictators and economic crises and all sorts of things that seem evil to us as well. A good example of this uh, is drawn out in the story of Joseph in the Old Testament. The Bible teacher R.C. Sproul years ago helped me to see some of these links from Joseph's life story. I think it's so helpful. And as I kind of work through these links, think about some of the events in the world that you might be looking at and scratching your head about at the moment. So travel with me to Joseph. He of the Technicolor dream coat, the multicolored coat, hated by his brothers who were jealous of the coat. And they're left, he's left for dead and then he's sold into slavery evil. How can God possibly work through a situation like that? And of course, out of this experience, Joseph is then sold into the household of an Egyptian man named Potiphar. Terrible. Now he's Potiphar's slave. Why would God allow that? And Potiphar has a wife who happens to falsely accuse Joseph of sexual misconduct, and he ends up in jail. Terrible. What on earth is God doing? Isn't Joseph one of his people? But in jail, he meets two convicts who are connected to Pharaoh, mighty Pharaoh. And one day, one of these convicts hears that the mighty Pharaoh is having nightmares. And so he explains, ah, well, I know an Israelite guy in jail named Joseph who's sitting there, and he can interpret dreams. So out comes Joseph. He interprets the dreams. Pharaoh takes a shine to him and makes him prime minister of Egypt, which is where he and his family settle. And over time, a great many Israelites come to join them, and a, 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 a community of God's people is established in that place in Egypt. Now, selling Joseph into slavery was evil. Mankind is evil. 
But if he hadn't been, then the Israelites would never have settled in Egypt. God is doing something here, even through the pain, even through the evil actions of man, God is sovereign over it all. And if we don't have the Israelites in Egypt, we don't have their enslavement by a different Pharaoh hundreds of years later. And if we don't have their enslavement, then we don't have the Exodus. And if we don't have the Exodus, we don't have the greatest redemptive act of God in their history and everything else that follows on from that point in history. Sproul puts it like this. I love this. He says, no coat. Look where the story starts. Little thing. No coat. No jealousy. No jealousy, no betrayal. No betrayal, no sale into slavery. No trip to Egypt, no Potiphar. No Potiphar's wife, no jail, no dreams, no acquaintance with Pharaoh. He's never elevated to prime minister. The children of Israel never settle in the land. There's never a slavery. There's never an exodus. There's never a nation. There's never the Ten Commandments. There's never the kingdom of God. What little coat issue is happening in your life right now that you don't understand? What greater good might God be working through that? God never decreed that Joseph should be sold into slavery because he has a nice coat and eight jealous brothers. The evil brothers decided that. But God worked through that evil act to bring about a greater good that Joseph could never have anticipated as he languished in jail for a crime that he didn't commit. The summary statement of Joseph's whole life and everything that we need to understand about the sovereignty of God is found in Genesis 50 verse 20. Man meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. That's sovereignty. Okay, I know I'm making us work hard today, but let's go back to our passage again. Caiaphas, the high priest, is prophesying that it would be better for Jesus to die than for the whole nation to perish. What's going on here is sovereignty. It's God's sovereignty. Caiaphas prophesies these words one way with evil intent in his heart, and God, who put those words there in the first place, hears them and agrees with them but with a whole different intention. Caiaphas is saying, let's put Jesus to death so that the Romans don't come and put us to death. But God's plan was always, Jesus will be put to death so that I don't have to come and put you to death. That's the whole point of the cross. Ironically, Caiaphas was right. It was better that one man should die in place of everyone else. What Caiaphas meant for evil, God meant for good. And that's how we can make some level of sense of the apparent evil in our world. God is still at work through them. Who started the war in the Ukraine? Evil men. Who suppresses and oppresses the poor and denies medication to the third world and pumps noxious greenhouse gases into the world and raises taxes on the lowly and traffics women and children? Evil mankind. Does God hate these things? Yes, of course he does. Can God work through these things? Yes, of course he can. Can he bring about good from evil circumstances? Yes, of course he can. Will he? Yes, of course he will. He has a plan to bring us into relationship with him and to make heaven our home. And he is working through every single event in history and every single event in your life to that greater end. So... What is it that is currently raging in your life that you don't fully understand? What pain? What relational breakdown? What hardship? What unanswered prayer? Sovereignty, my friends. What is it that you see in the world that you can't understand? In what ways are you crying out, God, where are you? Sovereignty. You've got to remember sovereignty. God is doing something, even through your pain. He is always doing something for your good and for his glory. 
Romans 8.28. This has been such a helpful verse for me over the years. It says, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. In all things. Every single event in human history, every single event in your life, God is working for the good of those who love him. What man meant for evil, God meant for good. And the way he does this, Caiaphas couldn't have said it better. He prophesied it for us. It's better that one man die for the people to preserve all the others. That's the cross. That's Jesus. That's the gospel. That's the free gift of grace to you, that one man should die so that you don't have to. The narrative takes a kind of a, a right turn at this point. We, uh, we come out of chapter 11, we move into chapter 12. And here we are, Lazarus has been raised from the dead, all the stuff with Caiaphas has happened, and then the next thing, we're in Mary and Martha's kitchen, and there's Lazarus again, and this time he's having a meal with Jesus. Doesn't say anything about what it was like being in the grave or anything like that. It just says he's having a meal now with Jesus, and Mary and Martha are serving this meal. And uh, what happens next, I think, underscores everything that I've been saying so far. So this is John 12, first seven, chapters, first seven verses. It says, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with them. Then Mary took about half a liter of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet, and she wiped his feet with her hair. That would have been such an intimate and unusual moment. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It's worth a year's wages. What a waste. Verse 7, leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. So mid-meal... Mary breaks open this jar of expensive perfume. This perfume is made from something called nard. We've actually, believe it or not, I got hold of some on Amazon this week. You can buy nard nowadays as well. It looks a little bit different. And we sprinkled some on um, some... Ah, here we go. We sprinkled some on these uh, serviettes and just laid them around the room and on the communion table. So you can have a sniff later on at what it would have smelled like. Very woody and very earthy. And she, she pours out this thick, fragrant it would have been a deep red liquid because nard in its pure form is, is red. This deep red liquid over Jesus' head and his hands and his feet. Thick red liquid. Nard was um, often used as a, as a pre-burial perfume in the ancient world. It was used by embalmers to prevent the smell of decomposition. So it was common to pour the stuff over a body before it was put into a grave. And once again, what we see here, Mary acts one way to honor Jesus, and she's pouring herself out to him. But at a deeper level, something else is happening. Sovereignty is happening. She's anointing him for burial. It's a deeply prophetic moment. Jesus' feet and head would have been covered in this deep red liquid, a liquid used by embalmers for burial. Shortly later, his head and his hands and his feet will again be covered by the deep red of his own blood as he hangs on the cross, dying to take away the sins of the world. His broken body would be embalmed, probably using nard. And in his death, our sin is removed from us, and our shame is removed from us, and our separation from God is removed from us, and the guilt of our sin is removed from us, and the penalty of death is removed from us, and the way to God is made open to us to come to him and to know him and to be set free by him and to be in relationship with him and to know salvation and peace and freedom in him. 
That, my friends, is the gospel. It's a free offer. It's a gift. It's not a transaction. You bring nothing. He brings everything, just like any other gift. Better that one man should die than the entire nation. That's the summary of the gospel. That's the summary of what God has done for us through Christ. One man, Jesus Christ, goes to his death, and in his death we receive life. He's at work in the world. He's at work in your life. Nothing is out of his sovereign control, which means two things. Firstly, if you are yet to come to know him, today is your day. He has done all that is necessary for you to come to know him and to find salvation and freedom and peace and eternal life. He has drawn you here today, and he holds out his hands to welcome you home, and you are most welcome. Second thing, if you already know him and have walked with him for some time, and you just need some assurance that your situation or any situation is under control, that he holds it in his hands, that he is working out his plan in spite of the circumstances, and that because he is perfectly good, the way he works these things out will also be perfectly good. Then rest again today in his sovereignty. It's all going to be okay. Because one man died. The price is paid for all of us. Nobody else needs to. Come again today. Know the blood bought freedom and life that Jesus Christ offers you. Should we pray? King Jesus, I, um, I do so thank you for your sacrifice, which we are very quick to sometimes just kind of give not much more than a fleeting thought to, but the depth of what you achieved for us on the cross, the significance for all human history and for every soul in this room is extraordinary and magnificent, and that is the basis of our worship, that you looked on us, individuals, evil mankind, in our broken state, in our rebellious state, walking away from you like those men who saw Lazarus raised from the dead and went the other way. Even then, you looked on us with compassion and said, I am going to go and do what is necessary to bring freedom and life and salvation to them. And for the joy set before you, the joy which was a forgiven people who could be in relation for you, a relationship with you, you went to the cross. And we so thank you for that. We thank you that you're at work in the world. We thank you that no situation is out of your control. We thank you that in good seasons and in bad seasons, you are alongside us. You are God with us. You are Emmanuel. We thank you that you are sovereign. And you're not sovereign in the sense that you sit with your arms crossed on a throne. You're sovereign because you rule in our lives and over every situation. Lord, I pray for all of us that faith would rise up. I pray that for all of us we'd get a, a paradigm shift of how you're at work bringing about good in our lives. All things for the good of those who love you. Lord Jesus, be glorified, I pray. Amen.